Welcome to the Got Science Podcast. I'm your host, Colleen McDonald. Today we're talking about hockey. Well, not really. We're talking about the hockey stick, the world's most controversial hockey stick. And stick around after the interview. Shreya Dervasula has another edition of Sidelining Science. For many Americans, our first introduction to the idea that our climate is changing was presented to us with an unforgettable visual, the hockey stick graph. The long part of the stick shows us hundreds of years of relatively stable climate with normal global average temperatures. The curved part represents global average temperatures over the last few decades, which have shot up dramatically. Dr. Michael Mann was one of the leading scientists behind the hockey stick graph when it was first published in the late 90s. Since then, he's been a favorite target of climate science deniers. He's been harassed, hacked, and threatened. He's had his research unfairly poked to bits in attempts to discredit him. But he stood by his work in the face of smear campaigns and phony controversies for decades now, and has been vindicated with recognition from the scientific community. Dr. Mann is a distinguished professor of atmospheric science and the director of the Earth System Science Center at Penn State University. He joined me to talk about his introduction to climate science, how scientific knowledge is a slow process of accumulation, why it's not enough for scientists these days to simply do their work, and what he would do with Wonder Woman's lasso of truth. Michael Mann, welcome to the Got Science podcast. Thanks. Great to be with you. So our listeners may know you as one of the climate scientists who originally demonstrated the hockey stick curve, a graph showing evidence of the Earth's rapid warming. So that was back in the 90s. Others may know you as one of the most harassed scientists in modern history, along with others. You've had death threats leveled at you. You've been sued by the former attorney general of Virginia to gain access to your private emails you were even mailed fake anthrax. The list goes on and on. And I do want to talk to you about all of that today. But first, I'd like to go back to the beginning. Why did you become a scientist? Yeah, I became a scientist because I loved solving problems. Um, From the the earliest days that I can remember, uh, I was always asking anybody who would listen, questions, you know, why is this this way? Uh, I still recall I had an uncle um, who I would constantly uh, pester uh, about, uh, you know, the traveling at the speed of light. Uh, finally, he gave me he gave me the book, Jonathan Livingston Seagull, and told me it would answer all my questions. <laughs> of course, it didn't. But, uh, but um, I was always curious about the natural world, about the way things work. Uh, and uh, I always enjoyed solving problems, uh, mathematical problems, scientific you know, what you might call scientific problems. And so that that led me to pursue um, a degree in applied math and physics at UC Berkeley. Um, and I went off to graduate school at Yale uh, to uh, study theoretical physics and then sort of realized that there was this really interesting problem um, that required math and physics, um, the problem of modeling uh, Earth's climate. and. That struck me as a fascinating problem where I could use the tools, uh, the math and the physics that I had learned to, to work on this really interesting problem that it turns out also has some pretty important societal implications as well. But that wasn't what drove my interest in climate. It was just 
this fascinating, huge, unsolved physics problem. Um, and so that's what led me into the, the field of climate research. I've been reading your book, The Madhouse Effect, which is a collaboration with cartoonist Tom Tolles. And full disclosure, I did read the cartoons first. <laughs> On page one, you talk about science and how it works. So the many levels of scrutiny and checks and balances. So. Tell me a little more about the problem and process. The, the problem we were actually interested in, we were using uh, what are known as proxy records. These are things like tree rings and corals and ice cores and uh, lake sediments, uh, natural archives that we can use to extend the climate record uh, back in time. We only have about a century or so of widespread thermometer measurements, and so to get a longer term sort of view of how climate changes, we need to turn to these so-called uh, proxy data. Um, the project that uh, I was working on at the time uh, had to do with natural long-term cycles uh, in the climate. It wasn't actually about climate change. It wasn't about human-caused climate change. I was interested in identifying long-term climate cycles, and the instrumental record alone wasn't long enough to, to do that. So that's why we turned to these uh, proxy records. And it was only really um, a byproduct of that analysis where we decided to use those records to actually reconstruct um, climate patterns back in time. And when we took a, lo a look at the result, we realized now that this work did have implications for human-caused climate change. Because when you averaged um, the information over the globe uh, to get a single number for each year, uh, the average temperature uh, for example, of the Northern Hemisphere, where we had the most data, and you plotted that back in time, it became clear that the warming spike that we've seen over the past century really has no precedent as, as far back as we could go, at least a thousand years. Um, and so we, we published that work uh, in uh, the journal Nature um, back in 1998. Uh, and in the article, we actually emphasized quite a bit the importance of these patterns for understanding natural climate variability, the El Nino phenomenon, um, and other things, uh, the how volcanoes uh, influence the climate. Uh, there were all these other interesting problems that were really the primary uh, impetus for doing these reconstructions in the first place. Um, but the curve that shows the average temperature of the Northern Hemisphere, um, which has come to be known as the hockey stick because of its shape. Um, the blade of the hockey stick being the rapid warming of the past century, and the handle being the longer term trend as you go back a thousand years. Um, that took on a like life of its own. That was the one sort of result in, in that article that got all the attention. And uh, suddenly, I found myself um, in sort of the the center of the larger, uh, very fractious debate over human-caused climate change because of the deep implications that this curve, the hockey stick, had. Um, it told a simple story. You didn't need to understand uh, the physics of the climate system to understand what this graph was telling us, that there is something unprecedented about the warming that we've seen over the past century. And by implication, it probably has to do with us. What sort of review then did your research undergo? to have uh, credibility um, in the scientific world. Findings have to be vetted through the process, the peer review process. By you, scientists. <laughs> right, where you submit an article to a journal, in this case, Nature, and it goes to other leading scientists in the field. Your work, your, your article is reviewed essentially by your competitors. And that's a 
pretty tough process to withstand. They're looking for holes uh, in your findings, in your arguments, and uh, they provide reports to the journal. Uh, the journal decides if the reviews merit publication um, with uh, substantial revision um, or if the problems uh, that are identified by the reviewers, the issues are uh, too great to overcome, they'll reject the manuscript. And Nature rejects the vast majority of manuscripts it actually um, sends out for review. Mm -hmm. uh, and it only reviews a small subset of articles that it considers to, to be most uh, significant. Um, so that's a really tough vetting process. And to come out at the other end um, and to have your article published means that you have to have addressed any of the issues that were raised by the reviewers in a meaningful way. Um, and that's just the first step because the way science works, uh, when you publish an article, that doesn't represent a, a new scientific understanding. It's one small increment in this larger foundation of, of what we know about the science. Um, very rarely does a scientific article um, substantially change our understanding. Uh, typically, it, it, it incrementally adds to our scientific understanding. And it's through the accumulated weight of multiple peer-reviewed studies that all point in a similar direction that we acquire um, what we think of as scientific knowledge. Um, getting an article published uh, in the peer-reviewed literature um, is the first step um, in establishing, um, you know, sort of an advance in the forefront of our understanding. Uh, but that alone is not enough to, to build a robust scientific consensus. Scientific consensus rests on the existence of multiple studies that all come to a similar conclusion. This makes it difficult then to communicate to the public about at what point we should really be worried or really do something. I know again in your book you talk about this tipping point. Have we passed the tipping point? Are we near it? What it I think it gives people some measure of knowing where they are in this process. Yeah, so sort of the tipping point of what we might describe as dangerous and catastrophic and irreversible climate change. Uh, there, that is a question I often get um, from, from people, uh, you know, are we there yet? Have we passed the tipping point? And the answer um, is uh, disappointingly nuanced um, <laughs> because in reality, there is no one uh, climate tipping point. There are probably many. And uh, rather than thinking about dangerous climate change as a cliff that we go off at some level of warming, often uh, described as a two degree Celsius, three and a half degree Fahrenheit warming of the planet relative to pre-industrial. It's where scientists have determined we, we start to see the worst impacts of climate change. But there isn't a cliff at two degrees Celsius warming. Um, it's more like an ever downsloping highway. And the farther we go down that highway, uh, the more treacherous it becomes. We want to get off at the earliest exit we possibly can. In reality, um, dangerous climate change to me um, isn't a cliff. It's more like a minefield. And we're walking out onto this minefield and uh, we will certainly set off mines um, if we continue to walk on, on, out onto that minefield. And we don't know exactly where they are. Um, all we know is that as we walk out onto the minefield, we subject ourselves to greater and greater uh, danger and risk. It's, it's admirable that you keep marching down, um, down this, this road. Because of your research, you've received 
death threats. Uh, you've received what looked like anthrax in the mail. Um, thankfully, it wasn't. Um, what did you do when you opened that envelope? And did it make you think that you should get out of the field of climate science? Uh, there were times uh, when, uh, you know, it, it, it felt like it was too much um, uh, and you start to, to, to question whether or not you signed up for all this. You know, when I got a degree in applied math and, and physics from UC Berkeley, went off to graduate school at Yale University, little did I think that I was um, sort of preparing for a career um, uh, of battle, of battling uh, these forces of, of uh, denialism. Um, so there, there in the you know there there were some tough times, um, uh, and uh, what kept me going was the support of my uh, colleagues, my fellow scientists, and especially scientists uh, for whom I have uh, the deepest respect, who who came forward and provided words of encouragement. Um, uh, my good friend uh, Steve Schneider, who's no longer with us, who's a great climate scientist and great science communicator, um, and um, and I had a number of conversations with him where he. You know, told me, look, you know, the fact that they're going after you like this, um, it tells you that uh, what you're doing is important. You're hurting their client, <laughs> um, is the way Steve would put it, uh, the, the client sort of in a metaphorical sense, the fossil fuel interests who are funding this. Um, you know, the, your scientific findings are inconvenient. They're having a real impact. Though it isn't what I signed up to do, um, I really don't think that there's any more important thing that I could be doing with my life than trying to inform this uh, discussion about what may be the greatest threat, um, the greatest challenge we face as a civilization. Uh, I feel honored to be in a position to inform that discussion. And so if you ask me, what, if I had the choice um, to do it over, would I choose a different path? The answer would be no, I, I would choose the same path. We'll be back in a minute with the second half of our interview. You're listening to the Got Science Podcast, brought to you by the Union of Concerned Scientists. More at gotsciencepodcast.org. If you want to know how corporations manipulate science, check out our disinformation playbook at ucsusa.org playbook. Now let's get back to our interview. How has this changed the, the way that you conduct your research? I imagine it's different. Yeah, we, you know, if you're a climate researcher today, especially one who engages uh, with the media and is involved in outreach and, and, and communication to the public, um, then you're going to be challenged. You're going to be attacked. Uh, it makes you all the more careful in your research. You want to make sure it's bulletproof because you know that there are you know, targets on your back and there are people who are, will look to discredit it in any way possible. You want to make sure that um, that your work stands up to the scrutiny, the legitimate scrutiny of your fellow scientists. And so I think it probably makes us more careful in, in the way we do science. We double check our calculations. Uh, we want to make sure that we've really gotten it right before we publish. Um, and. Uh, it also sort of reinforces um, this notion that, you know, your job isn't done when the paper is published um, because you still have to be out there um, trying to 
ensure that the uh, findings and their implications um, are conveyed accurately and objectively to the public. And you have these forces of denial who are trying to spin uh, uh, research um, in, uh, you know, in ways um, that downplay um, the significance of climate change and, and the threat of climate change. And I wrote an op-ed a few years ago in the New York Times, uh, the title of which was, If You See Something, Say Something, borrowed, of course, from our uh, Department of Homeland Security. But the point of the op-ed was really that um, as scientists, we have to be out there communicating what we've what we've found and what the implications are, uh, because if we don't, if we're not out there, then we leave a void that will be filled by other voices, uh, vested interests who have an ax to grind, who have an agenda to advance. Um, and that does a disservice to all of society. So it's an interesting, perhaps, new world where a scientist has to also be an amazing communicator to the layperson, and that's not easy to do. It's not a skill set that science yes. necessarily selects for, um, but I think increasingly we're seeing scientists, uh, who are younger scientists who are coming into science today who are much more engaged um, in, in sort of that side of it, uh, the communication and the outreach. Um, I, I think it, because it's sort of part of your, uh, your um, upbringing today, um, you know, uh, Young scientists have grown up in the world of social media, um, the online world. Um, and I think that uh, because we have seen these concerted attacks against science, it's brought in sort of a new breed of scientist who wants to do science, but also wants to be involved in defending science. And I think that's, uh, if you're looking for a silver lining, then, then that's certainly one. Mm -hmm. So I have to ask this question. Your research has gone through incredible scrutiny by the scientific community. How do you deal with the climate deniers, the non-scientists who throw out these ridiculous assertions? I, do you ever just want to put your face in a pillow and scream? <laughs> uh, I think I probably have on occasion. Um, <laughs> you can ask my family. They've probably heard. Uh, you know, yeah, there are times when it, it can be very frustrating. Um, not really because, you know, you're being attacked, um, you know, we've come to expect it, and, and frankly, most of the attacks are just so silly that they're not taken seriously by the people that we care about most are, are fellow scientists um, and policymakers who are engaged in a good faith effort to understand the evidence. Uh, but they do provide fodder um, for sort of the professional denialism, industry-funded denial uh, uh, you know, denialists and the front groups and organizations uh, funded by fossil fuel interests that spread misinformation and disinformation, and uh, the politicians, uh, policymakers, who sort of see themselves as essentially um, agents for uh, the fossil fuel interests who fund their campaigns. You know, the, the forces of denial at this point, in my assessment, are not engaged in a good faith debate because the basic science is in. What are you currently working on? So believe it or not, I still, um, you know, science is probably the thing I love doing uh, the most. Uh, I, I love um, being, you know, communicating the science as well. But, you know, what brought me into science, what got me into science in the first place was my love of doing science. And um, being on the forefront of the science um, sort of keeps me grounded in terms of what I know uh, and how, how well I can inform the discussion. There are a number of different 
projects that I'm involved in at any given time. There are probably a half dozen. Um, probably the one that I'm uh, particularly uh, interested in is um, uh, the, an effort to understand the linkages between climate change and extreme weather, because there are still some scientific uncertainties in the linkages. Uh, how climate change, human-caused climate change, is impacting storm systems um, and uh, how it may be changing the jet stream in a way that gives us sort of some of the wacky weather that we've seen in recent years. Um, there is legitimate uncertainty in that area of science, and the implications of that area of the science are profound because, of course, to the extent that climate change is, is exacerbating uh, uh, many types of extreme weather uh, events, that's where we're seeing some of the, where we're seeing some of the greatest toll, uh, something like, uh, I think it was $300 billion in insured damages in the United States um, last, uh, last year, just over the last year, by um, these unprecedented uh, wildfires, superstorms, floods. Understanding that linkage and being in a better position to assess how much worse it'll get if we continue on the course that we're on. Um, there's a lot of important science to be done in that area. And um, so that's one of the areas uh, that I'm, uh, you know, where I'm doing quite a bit of work. Uh, also in um, specifically the phenomenon of hurricanes and how climate change is impacting hurricanes and how um, changing hurricane characteristics together with sea level rise is impacting coastal risk um, for you know, the east coast of the U.S including you know, cities like Boston, New York City, but for the rest of the world as well. So if you could have one superpower, what would you want? Hmm. It would be Wonder Woman's golden lasso <laughs> because I would wrap it around our politicians and force them to tell the truth when it comes to climate change and the impacts that it's having. That is an excellent superpower. If I could grant it, I would. <laughs> What would you say to early career scientists to encourage them? Yeah, I would say um, have courage. Um, know that um, if you're doing cutting edge science in any field where the findings of science might collide with uh, powerful special interests, um, um, there's so many examples of uh, scientific research, uh, be it biology or chemistry or, or physically based, or physics basically, um, like the physics of climate change, where the science that we do eventually has implications that may prove inconvenient to powerful special interests, be they tobacco interests or the fossil fuel industry or the, uh, you know, the chemical industry. Um, and uh, we have to expect that they will push back uh, through any means available to them, and often that um, involves attacking scientists, attacking the science itself by trying to discredit the messenger, the scientist. So have courage and know that if you're being attacked um, by these sorts of folks, it's not because you're doing bad science or you're, or you're a bad person, it's because you're doing good science that really has implications, implications that are troubling to some of these vested interests. And know that you have the backing of the scientific community. And one of the things that um, has made me optimistic about um, where we're headed is just over the course of my career, how the scientific community has really started to recognize that they're in a fight with bad faith actors who are trying to discredit science. And 
they need to be more organized. They, the scientific community needs to be more committed to positive outreach and communication and to provide resources to scientists who are willing to do that and to protect them, whether that's in the legal realm or uh, simply in having an army of, of scientists who are out there trying to speak truth to power. Um, and this is a worthy battle. And if you're looking for a worthy battle, then the battle to inform the public about science and the implications it has, um, there's no worthy battle, in my view, to be involved in. And so I hope younger scientists recognize that. I think they do. I think I sense that in the younger scientists who are coming into this field. Um, it's sort of a new breed of scientist. Michael Mann, thank you so much for joining us here at the Got Science podcast. Thank you. It was great. And now, Shreya Dervasala with Sidelining Science. This episode of Got Science drops on April 17th. So I hope that everyone who can hear me right now has filed their 2017 income tax returns, or at least requested an extension. And while we have government spending on the brain, I wanted to take a moment to talk about a particularly insidious way that legislators manage to sideline science without much public outcry. That's through the budgets and spending packages. The government spending bill that was approved last month is Exhibit A of how Congress and President Trump attempted to push an anti-science agenda using the budgeting process. Without congressional approval of a spending bill, the government will shut down. And no one wants to be that guy. You know, the one who risks a shutdown over something in the bill that they don't agree with. Knowing that, some members of Congress insert all kinds of nasty things that don't belong in a spending bill, hoping that no one will notice. Like a rider, which is an additional provision added to a bill that has little to do with the subject of that bill. Usually, riders are used to pass legislation that no one would vote for if it stood alone. So within a budget bill that legislators are under a lot of pressure to pass, a determined member of Congress could include a stipulation that the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration should be defunded, and cross their fingers that their colleagues are too distracted or stressed to care. And if they were being really sneaky, they could insert a policy provision that has no business at all inside a spending or budget-related bill, like uh, that the EPA shouldn't be allowed to regulate safety hazards at chemical plants. In last month's spending bill, a couple of those underhanded writers did make their way into the final version, which was signed and approved. One continues a ban on protecting a vulnerable bird species that just happens to make its home in terrain that oil companies wish to use for fracking. And Congress also sidelined science by not increasing funding at all on federal climate science research. Some of our legislators just don't want to touch climate change with a 10-foot pole. So instead of increasing funding, they hold their noses and maintain the same level of funding as last year regardless of the fact that this is a problem that gets worse every year and requires more and more attention and resources. Thanks, Congress. That being said, I want to do something unusual for this segment and end with some good news. The federal spending bill, as originally requested by President Trump, eliminated funding for crucial programs within federal agencies, such as the Federal Flood Hazard Mapping and Risk Analysis, and the EPA's Chemical Safety Board. The bill also requested massive cuts to federal agencies such as the EPA, NASA, NOAA, and the USDA. However, 
because UCS, our partners, and our network of members and activists were watching, these harmful cuts did not make it through. Through meetings, sign-on letters, conversations with legislative aides, phone calls, emails, and op-eds, we pressured legislators to oppose any final spending bill that cut federal funds to science agencies or which included harmful anti-science writers or policies. And want some more good news? If you tuned in a few weeks ago, you heard my colleague Sharice Johnson explaining how the CDC was blocked for more than 20 years from conducting research on gun violence. In this spending bill, Congress finally gave CDC the green light to do so, which could be a massive step forward in preventing the endemic gun violence in the United States. Advocacy works, my friends. I hope you'll keep making your voices heard to your elected officials. The money they spend comes from you, after all, so you have a say in their funding priorities. For more specifics on what the spending bill will and won't fund, check out our blogs on the budget at ucsusa.org. And while insidious attacks on science will continue, disguised as budget legislation, we'll stay on the case to keep them from sidelining science. Well, that's it for this episode of Got Science. Special thanks to Dr. Michael Mann. Shreya Dervasala brought us Sidelining Science. This podcast was edited by Omari Spears. Music by Brian Middleton. Research and writing by Pamela Worth. Our executive producer is Rich Hayes, and I'm your host, Colleen McDonald. Thanks, and see you next time.